Please pray with me. Father God, we bless you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would humble our hearts as we come before it this morning. Lord, we know that your word is food to our souls, that it is a light to our path. We need your word day by day. And we ask, Lord, that you would give it to us this morning, that you would speak a living word to us, that we would come to know you better and love you better, Lord. We're so hungry for you, and we ask that you would meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, when I was in middle school in England, I started to learn Latin, and I kind of liked it. So when the opportunity came to ditch Latin after a couple of years, I chose instead to go on studying it. And uh, it turned out to be a good decision, because in my third year of learning Latin, I got a letter from my school inviting me to go on the annual Latin field trip. And this trip was the best swindle ever. It was nothing more than a vacation in Italy for 10 days, and the school sponsored it. And I just have the highest respect for my Latin teachers for convincing the powers that be that this was a worthwhile use of everyone's time. <laughs> they got to pretend they were teaching, and we got to pretend that we were in school while we toured the great sites of Rome, took a glance at some Latin inscription, and then headed for the nearest gelato shop. <laughs> So, while we were there in Italy, where no one spoke Latin, <laughs> there was one evening when we all went to hang out in the Piazza Navona, and that's one of Rome's great public squares. It's a huge plaza, entirely pedestrianized and surrounded by stately buildings all around, with fountains and statues, and it was thronging with tourists. So our Latin teachers made a beeline for the nearest outside bar, um, and we were left to soak in the atmosphere of the Piazza Navona and spend our parents' lira. And uh, we were warned against pickpockets and con artists, and particularly against string bracelet hawkers. All right, you've probably never heard of that, but they were a big problem in Italy at the time. Uh, it was a popular scam that was going on. So here's what they would do. People would make bracelets, little bracelets out of woven string, just like a few pieces of colored string. Um, and then they would tie them onto the wrists of tourists when they weren't looking. Uh, and then they would try to charge the tourist for the bracelet. And a surprising number of people paid up. <laughs> so there I was, aged about 14, on my first vacation without my parents, loose in the Piazza Navona. And uh, lo and behold, within about half an hour, I had a momentary lapse in vigilance. So I was sitting on the wall of a fountain, chasing a rivulet of gelato that had escaped from the cone, when I felt a strange tugging at my wrist, and I looked down to see a string bracelet hawker springing his trap. And he was remarkably adept. In much less time than I could tie my shoe, he'd whipped up an intricate little Gordian knot that I could see would resist several hours of one-handed picking. So I was caught. And uh, my consideration of resistance was brief. I was far too embarrassed to try to challenge him. And after all, it was my parents' money. What did I really care? <laughs> so I shelled out good lira for something I didn't want or need and something that I was anxious to cut off and throw away as soon as I got back to my hotel. Now, I think when some of us hear words like mission and evangelism, we begin to feel a bit like a string bracelet hawker, right? 
The world wants to make us feel that way. And to some extent, we do. That we're trying to sell a product that nobody wants and nobody really needs. That our methods are manipulative. And that even the people who buy are only going to want to get rid of that bracelet as soon as they get back to the hotel. Right? That's how the world views evangelists. That's how it wants to paint them as fanatical peddlers of a worthless product. But today we're going to follow the story of two of the trailblazers of Christian evangelism, Paul and Barnabas, as they set out on their very first missionary journey. And as we read about their story, I want to ask ourselves, do they really look like string bracelet hawkers? So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And when you find it, first person, shout out the page number. 911921 Acts chapter 30 So we're going to go through this whole chapter in three parts to see first that Paul and Barnabas were sent and commissioned by God second that they carried with them real spiritual power and third that their message brought real life and joy So first Paul and Barnabas were sent and commissioned by God this is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. So the scene is set in the church in Antioch. And Antioch was an important city in Syria. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's still there. Now it's called Antakya. And it's the southernmost town in Turkey. And you probably have never heard of it. But in the first century, Antioch was a great city. Herod the Great paved its main street with marble. And Antioch became an important central city for Christianity in the first century. It had a large and thriving church. And we read back in Acts chapter 11 that it was here in the church in Antioch that the followers of Jesus first became known as Christians. So the church in Antioch was the home church for Paul and Barnabas for over a year. And it was a big church. It was a diverse congregation made up of both Jews and Gentiles from several different countries. And we can see that diversity reflected in the names of its five main leaders. So here at the beginning of uh, Acts 13, we meet the prophets and the teachers of the church in Antioch. So this is like the pastoral team. Here they are. Barnabas, he was a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, he was a Jew from Africa. And there's a historical possibility that he was the same Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. Then Lucius of Cyrene, he's another African, and this time he has a Roman name. Then Menaean, he was probably the only Israeli Jew in the bunch. He was brought up in the household of King Herod. And then finally Saul, also known as Paul, who was a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, which is now West Turkey. So that's a huge geographical area that's being represented. It looks like a real dream team, five highly gifted and committed men from very different backgrounds and from many parts of the world. And any any church would be proud of a leadership team like this. Now, at least some of the members of this team were gifted as prophets, and that means that they had a particular call on their lives to discern God's word and to speak it to his people. And here at Incarnation, we have our own gifted prophets, and we're very glad of them. But if you consider yourself a prophet or an aspiring prophet, then pay attention. Discerning the word of God isn't easy, right? We can see in Acts 13. Not even for people who are gifted and not even for appointed leaders of the church. Because these first century prophets heard a true word from God only because they sought it earnestly. They really wanted 
to hear the Holy Spirit. So in verse 2, we find them fasting and worshipping. And then when they heard the word of God, they tested it rigorously with prayer and more fasting. So the Holy Spirit does reveal his will to our prophets, but not necessarily before they've sought him earnestly and intentionally and for an extended period of time. So being a prophet is hard work and there isn't much food involved. But the Holy Spirit spoke to that group and told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for some special work that at this point wasn't explained. And what that meant for the church was that nearly half of their pastoral team had to leave immediately. And no doubt that was a sore loss for the church at Antioch, losing Saul and Barnabas. But it was a loss that they were willing to suffer gladly for the sake of their risen Lord and for the sake of other people who needed his gospel. So friends, if the Lord should speak to incarnation in this way, as he has in the past, like with Tim and Anna and Nick and Ceci and Cassidy, are we equally willing to say yes without hesitation? Because some of the Lord's calls on our lives are costly, maybe even all of them. But that doesn't stop them being good and right and full of joy in the end. So imagine if that church at Antioch had held back from sending out Paul and Barnabas. Imagine if they said, we just can't spare them. They're doing important work here. How many pages of our New Testaments would just vanish? How many churches in Turkey and Greece would disappear? And how many generations of Christian children and grandchildren in Europe would be lost to the family of God? It was such a gift to all of us that Antioch was willing to send out two of its best leaders. And that church did it because God clearly told them to. God commissioned his own workers. He appointed his own representatives. And he sent them out together as a pair. And, and Paul, in the future of his mi uh, mission, would always work side by side with another brother in the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas went out. And they went out like Abraham, not really knowing where they were going, but sure of who they were following. And this mode of mission is kind of new in the book of Acts. It's really the first time for the church, because up until this point, the whole operation of the church had been very Jerusalem-centered. The narrative of Acts so far has focused on Peter, and it stayed mostly within the geographical boundaries that Jesus himself operated in while he was on earth. So Jesus, he was always on the move, he was always traveling throughout his whole ministry, but he never strayed more than about 70 miles from his hometown of Nazareth, apart from his brief stay as in Egypt as a toddler. He stayed mostly around Galilee and Judea and Samaria, the places where Judaism was well known and people who understood it were the majority. And so far in Acts, the church hasn't really left those same geographical boundaries. But here in chapter 13, we see a new thing happening. The focus of the narrative switches from Peter to Paul. And Paul starts traveling long distances, crossing oceans and engaging with people who live very far from Jerusalem both physically and spiritually. And he does it at the clear command of God. So that's the first thing I want to notice in this chapter, that Paul and Barnabas were sent and commissioned by God. Now, second, they carried with them real spiritual power. So we're moving on to verses 4 through 12 of Acts chapter 13. 
And they arrive at their first stop, which is on the island of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus was home for Barnabas. He grew up there. And I wonder how much that played a part in their itinerary. It makes good practical sense, doesn't it, for them to start their missionary journey in a place that one of them knew well. So just like when Taylor finished seminary and wanted to plant a church, it made good practical sense for him to do it here in Tallahassee, where he already owned property, and he already knew dozens of people who would partner with him. So often, the call of God on our lives is a big surprise. It's a call to do something we would never have thought of or chosen, but equally often, it makes sense based on who we are and where we've been. God's call on our future so often grows out of the experiences he's given us in the past. And so Paul and Barnabas started their mission in Cyprus. They landed on the eastern end of the island at Salamis, and then they walked across the whole island to the capital at the western end, which is Paphos, which would have been about a week's journey on foot. And we can be sure that there were many stops along the way, and they preached the gospel to many people along the way, but Luke left out all those stories so that he could focus on what happened in Paphos. The most important man in Cyprus, the Roman proconsul, heard about them and summoned them to preach to him. His name was Sergius Paulus. And he's an interesting figure. Luke calls him a man of intelligence, which probably means he was interested in the Greek idea of philosophical wisdom. But he was also intrigued by spiritual power, as he shows by keeping a Jewish magician as one of his counselors. So this magician is called by a couple of different names in Acts 13. Bar-Jesus is one of those names. That means son of salvation. Kind of ironic. Um, And Elemus Magus means expert magician, which is probably a nickname. And that suggests that he was able to do some pretty impressive magic, right? So think along the lines of Pharaoh's magicians, court magicians at the beginning of the book of Exodus. And they were able to turn a staff into a snake and turn water into into blood. We're looking at real spiritual power and sort of dark magic. So the Roman proconsul trusted Bar Jesus because of his obvious display of spiritual power that gave him credibility in the proconsul's eyes. But Bar Jesus was deceiving his master. He was, in fact, a false prophet. And so he was leading the proconsul gently down the primrose path to the everlasting bonfire gently down the road to death. So he was a bit like Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, that slimy, evil counsellor to King Theoden, who whispers in his ear and keeps the king imprisoned in a ghostly, death-like state. Remember that powerful scene? But here in Acts, Paul defeated Bar-Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So verse 9 says, "But, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this, friends, is real spiritual power. It's a kind of power that shows up the fake stuff as a fraud. This is Moses demonstrating God's supremacy over Pharaoh's magicians and over all the gods of Egypt. This is Gandalf 
freeing the king from his slavery to the lies of Grima Wormtongue. This is redemption and release for the proconsul. But even for Bar Jesus, it's discipline and not death, right? Because he's only blind for a time. It's a severe warning. Because the son of salvation has actually been, as Paul says, a son of the devil. And the guide has led the king down crooked paths. So the one who claimed to see is now going to be blind. And the one who led the way is now going to seek people to lead him by the hand. But only for a time. Because if he'll listen to the word of God, he too can be saved. And his blindness will then be a severe mercy as it was for Paul himself, leading him to repentance. And we pray that for all those who give their lives to darkness. So that's the second thing to notice about Paul and Barnabas, that they carried with them real spiritual power. And interestingly here, it was the power that convinced the proconsul of their message. He was an intelligent man, he was a smart guy, but it wasn't Paul's reasoning that convinced him of the truth. It was a display of God's power that shamed his expert magician. Paul recalled in his letter to the Thessalonians that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit. And we should pray that the Holy Spirit also confirms our gospel as we preach it with power. So now third, the message of Paul and Barnabas brought real life and joy. And this is from the rest of chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. And I won't be able to look at all those verses in detail, but let me summarize. Paul and Barnabas left Cyprus and set sail for Perga, which is now called Antalya on the south coast of Turkey. So by now they were about 400 miles from Jerusalem. And this was home turf for Paul. It was in the same province as Tarsus, where he was from. And from there they traveled north to Antioch in Pisidia. So another Antioch. Please don't be confused. They start off in this chapter in Antioch in Syria, and they end this chapter in Antioch in Pisidia. Two different cities with the same name, but they're about 350 miles apart. And the first thing they did there was to visit the synagogue on the Sabbath with the hope of getting to preach there. And this is the second time in this chapter that they've gone to the synagogue first. Did you notice that? And that seems to have been Paul's practice wherever he went. So we know him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's sometimes called that in the scriptures. And Paul traveled deeply into predominantly Gentile territories. But whenever he landed in a new place, he would always start by bringing the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. And perhaps when he went, he showed up in some kind of rabbinical dress or had a little badge or something. So he was invariably invited to stand up and speak. So Paul gave full opportunity to the Jews to receive his message before he took it on to the Greeks. And over and over again, it was only the Jewish rejection of the gospel that meant that the Gentiles got to hear it, as is the case here. So Paul went straight to the synagogue on the first Sabbath and shared the good news of Jesus with the Jewish people there, and they had probably never heard it. This is the first sermon recorded in Acts that was preached to people who had never met Jesus and maybe not even heard of him before. And it's clearly a very Jewish sermon. It sounds very much like Peter or Stephen from earlier in Acts. Paul's preaching a message that's firmly grounded in the context of the history of Israel. So this wouldn't be what Paul would say to a Gentile audience. And it's not what he does say when he addresses Greeks later on. 
But Paul tailored his gospel to his audience. But his bottom line, wherever he was speaking, the heart of his message that he wanted to get across, whoever he was talking to, was the news that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead and therefore was shown to be God's appointed saviour and that therefore anyone who put their trust in Jesus could have their sins forgiven. That's it. That's the heart of his message. That's the bottom line. And when he addressed the synagogue in Antioch, Paul teed up for this shot by first winning their trust and attention. And he started with things that they both agreed on, their common history, his history that he shared with them, the history of the Old Testament. So he showed them through their shared history that their God was a God who did new things and rescued people and fulfilled his own promises, right? That's the particular emphasis of Paul in this survey of their history. So verse 17, he says, God chose our fathers and he led them out of Egypt. Notice how active God is. Verse 19, he gave them the land. Verse 20, he gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them Saul when they asked for a king. And then verse 22, he raised up King David. All things that God was doing through their history, all things that they all knew and believed already, and they're all things that show an active God who does new things and rescues people in fulfillment of his own promises. So now, says Paul, for Jesus. What we're seeing is that God has done a new thing. He's raised up a new king in the line of David, this time literally raised him up from the dead. It's a new thing, but it's in clear continuity with what's come before. It's part of the work that God's been doing for centuries. And it's promised beforehand in the Psalms and the prophets. So Paul says it's wonderful, but it shouldn't be all that surprising. It shouldn't alarm them and put their defenses up. It's not a departure from what they already believed. It's the natural conclusion to the story that they've been following all their lives. And it happened in their own days. So it's great news. That's the way that Paul delivered the message here in the synagogue in Antioch. And most of the Jews were delighted to hear it. They wanted to hear more. And many of them, it says in verse 43, followed Paul and Barnabas, who urged them to continue in the grace of God. Notice the continuity in that statement. Their Judaism had always been about living in the grace of God. And now all they had to do was to continue living in the grace of God. But then, despite the early acceptance of many, when Paul and Barnabas came back the following week, an opposition party had gathered who heckled them and insulted them. And that's why they left and took the message to the Gentiles, as they say in verse 46. Since you thrust the word aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so in verse 48, Luke reports that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So Luke wants to confirm to us in this chapter that the Gentiles weren't an afterthought. But God had decided ahead of time that a certain number of them were appointed to believe and receive eternal life. So this was all part of God's plan A, and it was a good plan. So the chapter ends in verse 52 on this note. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles received the message of Jesus for what it was. 
good news. Great news, the best news. Forgiveness, hope and eternal life. The message of Paul and Barnabas brought real life and joy. So when we think about ideas like mission and evangelism, some of us might start to feel a bit like string bracelet hawkers, like we're using manipulative methods to try to sell a product that nobody wants or needs. But friends, that's a lie, isn't it? That's a lie sown by the world. It couldn't be further from the truth. Mission follows the prompting of God to share a product that everybody needs, free of charge with people who don't yet have it, for his glory and their joy. After worship and prayer, it's the most worthwhile and loving thing we could do with our time. And let's be honest, few of us would ever want to share the good news of Jesus with our friends if Jesus hadn't told us to. We'd prefer just to keep it to ourselves. But he has told us to. So we might be more like Peter and stay in one place and speak to the people around us, or more like Paul, traveling long distances to take the message to far-off places. But one way or another, we need to be getting the word out because God wants it out, and he wants to save more people. Right? When we look at Acts chapter 13, can we doubt it that God wants to save people. Salvation is his initiative from beginning to end and every step along the way. God sent his own son to die to save people. And then God saved Paul, the man he wanted to preach his word. Then God told the prophets in Antioch that he wanted Paul and Barnabas out there spreading the message. And then when Paul took the message, God sent his Holy Spirit to confirm it with power. And the message that Paul delivered was that God has been saving people from the beginning and that he was still doing it. And then finally, God appointed men and women to believe. Salvation begins and ends with God. God keeps it moving through every stage of the process. So we might partner with God at various points along the way, but it's always God's work, every bit of it beginning to end. At his command, we take his gospel about his son to the people he has prepared to receive it. That's mission. And God implores every one of his sons and daughters to join him in this work. It is his work. And he implores us to join him, an apprentice in the family business. So I ask you this morning to ask God to earnestly seek him as to where he wants you to work. And you can ask our prophets here to help you discern. Most of them serve as prayer ministers during communion. They're standing at the back praying for people. So go back today and ask them to pray with you to discern how God wants you to work. But find a way to make make your life about this work. And I have one more word to close with for people who might feel like outsiders this morning like you're just visiting and maybe don't really understand some of the things I've been talking about. Because back in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas told the Jews who opposed them that they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Did you notice that verse? It's a really amazing verse. Both verse 46 of chapter 13. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And it struck me that in the past couple of years serving at this church, I've met a lot of people who judged themselves unworthy for one reason or another, mostly young people. It seems to me like a postmodern epidemic 
of people feeling like they're not worthy, not worthy of love, not worthy of kindness, not worthy of forgiveness, maybe not even worthy of happiness. And if you resonate with that this morning, then I want to declare to you in the name of Jesus that you are worthy. You are worthy of love and kindness and forgiveness and happiness and worthy even of eternal life. So stop listening to your own Grima worm tongue, your own bar Jesus who whispers in your ear and tells you to be ashamed because he is a liar. Listen instead to the God who made you, the God who cannot lie, who tells you that you are his precious creation and that you are worth dying for and that this free gift of eternal life is for you. Please accept it and stop judging yourself unworthy. In Jesus' name.